The Catechism spends quite a bit of time on the teaching of the Lord's Supper in light of the fact that it was an important debate in the Reformation time. And, and here we want to list, uh, think about a different aspect of the Lord's Supper as we look at Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. This is God's word. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of, the, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who was to do this. So our the reading of God's holy word. May he bless this word to our hearts this evening. Well, as Christians, we are people this side of Eden who are going through the wilderness. And we say that word sometimes because like Israel of old, we have been set free from bondage to sin, set free from the true Pharaoh, we might say, who is the devil. And right now we are going through the wilderness of this life to our eternal resting place, to home, to the promised land. But the wilderness, this time that we're going through, is a difficult time for us as God's people. It's in the wilderness that our hearts are revealed. Uh, the wilderness is a time of testing. Even as we heard this morning, it's in the wilderness that we could find ourselves doubting the promises of God, grumbling against the Lord. We could find ourselves wanting to throw in the towel altogether and just turning back on this pilgrim journey that God has called us to. And the Lord, our God, is mindful of our weakness. He's mindful of our frailty as we make our way through the wilderness as the church of Jesus Christ. And so what does God do? He provides for his people tangible signs that remind us of his presence, that remind us of his love and of his care for us in Jesus Christ, that we might know in all seasons of life that the Lord is with his people to the very end of the age. Last time in this evening's service, Pastor Taylor highlighted for us six stories from the scriptures of God eating with his people and dining with them, drawing near to them in both the Old and in the New Testament. And in this particular text, we want to think about what it actually means to eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus. What does this mean for us in our pilgrim journey? And before we dig into that important topic, we want to first consider uh, just one of the roots here that we see of the Lord's Supper that Jesus highlights for us here in Luke 22. So first, we're going to consider the biblical backdrop of the Lord's Supper here. Then we'll continue the benefits of the Lord's Supper. And we'll consider the response that Jesus calls us to uh, in the Lord's Supper. But if you look at verses 14 through 16, you see a little bit again of the, the backdrop behind the Lord's Supper. As human beings, we enjoy a good meal. 
There's something special about breaking bread together, eating with one another, sharing fellowship and stories in our lives with each other over food. And the Bible tells us, as we heard last week, that God loves to dine with his people. There's a story of Abraham in Genesis 18 dining with three heavenly visitors. And most commentators connect these heavenly visitors to manifestations of God himself visiting Abraham because in that meal in Genesis 18, God confirms his covenant promises to Sarah. In Exodus 24, we read how after the Sinai covenant was ratified, it was sealed with a meal. Moses and the priests and the elders got to enjoy a feast with God on the holy mountain, and they ate of that sacrificial peace offering in God's presence. If you look at our text, one of the most important um, connections to the Lord's Supper here is the Passover. The Passover meal comes from Exodus chapter 12. Jesus connects us with the Passover meal when he says here in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. The actual event of the exodus out of Egypt by the hand of Moses is what led to this Passover meal. And part of the purpose of the Passover was to establish the people of Israel as God's people. It was an identity creating meal. You remember at the Passover meal was set up in the midst of a severe judgment, the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. The Lord established this new feast for his people that would remind them in all generations of his favor and of his protection for them. And in each generation, the Israelites were to remember and acknowledge their connection with that first Exodus event, even if they weren't there at that Exodus personally. In fact, in liturgies today, in the Jewish tradition, it's often said uh, these words, In every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. Many things happened at that Passover meal, but you remember the most important thing that happened was that God's people were to set aside a spotless lamb for God as a sacrifice. And God said that each Israelite household was to take some blood from that lamb in Exodus 12, 7, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. By doing this, they would be delivered from the angel of death that would come throughout the land to strike down each household, the firstborn son. God's protection, you see, came at a great cost. Think about this. Death came to both the Israelite households and to the non-Israelite households, the difference for Israel was that God gave them a substitute. God did not strike them down because their faith was so strong or because they were so victorious in how much they believed in God. They were spared death on account of the blood, the blood that was put over their house. And we begin to see here, don't we, the connection with the Lord's Supper. In order for human beings like you and me to escape the awful judgment of God, the Lord has provided a substitute sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, who would shed his blood on behalf of the unworthy. Jesus says at this first supper, again, these words, whoever eats my body 
and drinks my blood has eternal life and will not come into condemnation. Christ's salvation, again, it sets us free from that true Pharaoh, the devil. He delivers us from the true chains of sin, breaking the power of sin in our life. He is our Passover lamb. And just like Exodus chapter 12, we see that before that severe judgment came, God graciously joined his people to himself. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Before he goes to that cross and suffers the judgment of God, he joins his people to himself and prophetically says, this is my body which is broken for you. Just as that Passover recounted the Exodus in all generations, so too the Lord's Supper recounts for this world that greater worldwide Exodus that Jesus accomplished for his people. In the Lord's Supper, we see then our identity as those who are called friends of God. And in every generation, God is showing forth what Jesus has done to bring salvation from the judgment of God. So that's the connection, a little bit of the biblical background of the Lord's Supper that Jesus highlights, especially in connection with the Passover. But let's think about verse 19, especially. This is the main meat of our uh, text and of our thoughts tonight. The benefits of the Lord's Supper. What is happening when we're taking that bread and wine upon our lips? What happened this morning when we enjoyed communion together? Verse 19, in this meal, Jesus says those incredible words which have sparked much debate in the Christian church. This is my body, which is given for you. And before we dig into the different interpretations of that, we want to first note the very obvious, that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is our host. He is the one who comes and serves his beloved sheep around the table he says notice this is my body which is given for you he wants us to see the kindness of god the love of god although jesus is lord as we heard last week rightfully belonging at the head of the table he lays aside those outer garments he takes on the form of a servant he stoops down so low and graciously washes us shedding his blood to forgive us of all of our sins this is my body jesus says it's given for you it's given for sinners now we want to think about these words and what Jesus means by these words, this is my body, which is given for you. We we'll have to put on our theological thinking caps as we hit a couple of these different views. There's a couple of different ways that people have tried to interpret these words of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. The first one is what we call the Roman Catholic view. In the Roman Catholic view, you feast upon the literal body and blood of Jesus here on earth. This is what's called, it's a big word, but you probably know it, maybe. It's the word transubstantiation. And what this word means is that the bread and the wine are transformed in their very substance into the literal body and literal blood of Jesus Christ. So from the Catholic Church, here's from their Council of Trent, third session, chapter one, one of their confessions. First of all, it says the Holy Council teaches and openly and plainly professes that after the consecration of bread and wine, that's the prayer of the priest, 
Our Lord Jesus, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist under the appearance of those sensible things. And so to eat and drink the body and blood means that here on earth, you put into your mouth the literal body and blood of Jesus. And you might say, well, it doesn't look like the body of Jesus, doesn't smell like a human body, doesn't taste like real blood. And they say, no, these are the accidental properties, the things that are appearing to us, but the substance, the reality really is Jesus. Another view is the, called the, the Lutheran view. In this view, Christ's body and blood are also physically present on earth. That's another key, on earth. But the body and wine, uh, the bread and wine are not transformed in their substance into the body and blood of Christ. But they teach that Christ's body is mysteriously in, with, or under the elements of bread and wine. This view is called consubstantiation, right? Transubstantiation, the substance is transformed. Consubstantiation, the body and blood of Jesus are with, con, with the substance of bread and wine. And so here's Martin Luther in his small catechism, 1529. He says this, what is the sacrament of the altar? The answer is, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the bread and wine given unto us Christians to eat and drink as it was instituted by Christ. So along with the Roman Catholic Church, Christ's body and blood are brought down to earth, and we don't just feed on Christ spiritually by the mouth of faith, but upon the literal body of Christ with our mouth. That's on one side of the spectrum. The far other side of the spectrum, it's what's called the Zwinglian view, the view held by most Baptist churches today. In this view, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic memorial of what Jesus did. They interpret Christ's words, this is my body, in a purely symbolic way. In their view, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are not objective means of grace, but they're places of subjective experience where we simply remember what Jesus did and we put our trust and faith in him. And with our Baptist brothers and sisters, we say to that, yes and amen, that is a very important part of what we're doing at the Lord's Supper, remembering Jesus, putting our faith and trust in Jesus. But we believe that the scriptures are telling us that in this sacred meal, something more is actually happening. So we have these views on both sides of the spectrum. What is the Reformed view? Well, with our Lutheran brothers and sisters, we believe that Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper. And we believe that we enjoy communion with Jesus, even with his body and blood. But we believe in a different mode of Jesus's presence. Stick with me here. The key event that helps us to understand the nature of the sacrament rightly is the bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8, he raised his hands and he blessed his disciples before he left. And then the angels said to the disciples these words, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner 
as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, when Jesus comes again bodily from heaven, you're going to see it with your eyes. It's not going to be mysterious. It's going to be visual and glorious. You're going to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. But here's the thing. In between that final day of Jesus' second coming and this day that we're living in, Christ is with us how? By the power of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the helper. He is the advocate. He is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the one who communicates to us Jesus in heaven with all of his saving blessings. And so we believe that this is a spiritual meal, capital S, a Holy Spirit governed meal where the Spirit of God is linking the church of Jesus with the ascended Savior at God's right hand. He is bringing to us Christ and all of his blessings. In fact, he is lifting us up to Jesus that we might feed on Jesus by faith, feeding on his true body and true blood. The sign of bread and wine here on earth are united to the reality that they signify the body and blood of Jesus in heaven so that our form says we do not doubt but joyfully believe we receive in this meal nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of Christ. Listen to how Calvin puts it. He says the bond of this connection is therefore the spirit of Christ with whom we are joined in unity and is like a channel through which all that Christ himself is and has is conveyed to us. This will connect with us here, what he says, because it's hot outside. He says, for if we see that the sun shedding its beams upon the earth, casts its substance into some measure upon it in order to beget, nourish, and give growth to its offspring, why should the radiance of Christ's spirit be less in order to impart to us the communion of his flesh and blood. You see what God is doing? God sets apart ordinary bread, ordinary wine, and he does extraordinary things. He communicates to us Christ and all of his blessings, forgiveness, eternal life, and he gives us from that new creation a real taste of the glory that is to come. That is why in many ancient liturgies, including our own, there's in that form those words to the people of God, lift up your hearts, and we say in response, we lift them up to the Lord. Because Christ is not being brought down to us bodily, again, by the Holy Spirit, we are being lifted to Jesus, lifting our hearts to the Lord, lifting our eyes to heaven in order to commune with our risen King. Ephesians 2 says in some mysterious way, even though you're seated right here at Ontario United Reformed Church, in some mysterious way, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that you have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And this kind of view of the Lord's Supper, we hold to it not out of tradition, but because we believe this is what God's word is saying. We believe that this is what makes sense of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, where he speaks of the bread and wine as a participation in the body and blood of Christ. That word participation is the word koinonia. It's maybe a term you've heard before because it's the term for fellowship, for fellowship even amongst the people of God. In the Lord's Supper, again, our risen King comes to us in our wilderness journey 
and he enjoys real fellowship with us by the power of the Spirit, communicating to us on our journey his love, his presence, his grace, even his victory. The Lord is mindful of our weakness, and he's mindful of our frailty. He's given to us this meal to lift up our hearts to God. What should our response be as God's people? Well, Jesus says a few things here. Our final point, our response of faith. Verse 19, again, he says, do this in remembrance of me. As God's people, we are to look back and to remember what Jesus did for us. Don't read too quickly the context of the Lord's Supper. We're told it was on the night that our Lord was betrayed. Other accounts say this is when his hour had come. In other words, beloved, as we remember what Jesus did in the supper, we're to remember the betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends, his disciple, Judas Iscariot. We're to look back and we're to remember, think about what Jesus went through, his trial, his torture, his bloody cross, Remember that he was left alone, that all of the disciples were scattered in his greatest hour of need when Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And beloved, in Scripture, remembering is not just an intellectual exercise, but it's a call to action as well. Right? When God says, remember the poor, he's not saying, just think about them in your minds, but do something in relation to them. When God says in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he's not saying just think about church, but he's calling us to worship. He's calling us to fellowship. He's calling us to rest. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember by doing. We come to communion and and we break bread. We, we, we drink of that cup. We confess our Christian faith. We sing to the Lord. We remember the cost of our deliverance. Again, God knows, like Israel, we are a forgetful people. And so he gives to us this meal to help us remember what Jesus did for us personally. And Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11:26, another thing we are to do in response is not only to remember, but to proclaim the Lord. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes at the supper of God. You see, in this meal, we're not only looking backwards, but in the meal that we get to enjoy every week together, we are a people who are looking forward. We're looking forward to a new day, a new creation, to the blessings of God that are to be revealed fully when Jesus comes back. We're looking forward to the glory that awaits God's people Right now, as Christians, we're to be people who look backward by faith to the cross. We look forward to that final day of deliverance, but we also look upward right now to our risen King and know our fellowship and our communion with him right now. And we actually look outward as well to this world as we proclaim the victory of Jesus. See, at the table of the Lord, when you come forward, and you take those elements in your hand, and you sit down, you are actually doing something prophetic. You are saying before this watching world that salvation is found in Jesus alone, that only the body and blood of Jesus can forgive sins.
Only the body and blood of Jesus can deal with guilt. Only the body and blood of Jesus can create an identity out of people who are different and bring us together as one. See, communion is a great blessing when we understand why our gracious God set it up. It's not a passive religious exercise that we mindlessly participate in. But as we come in repentance and faith and humility and unity with brothers and sisters, we truly get to commune with our risen Savior and our faith is strengthened and our bonds of love with one another are deepened. And so, beloved, may we know for certain that our God has not left us alone as we go through the wilderness. He comes and he gives to us his word that we hear with our ears. And in all of our other senses, he comes to us in the supper and confirms that gospel message in our hearts. The Lord has prepared a table before us in our enemies, before, before our enemies. And in Christ, our cup overflows. And so may we continually lift up our hearts to our God and taste and see that he is good. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your kind provisions. Lord, you know that we are weak, that we're slow to believe and to understand your promises. And so you stoop down to us so low to show to us, even in these tangible signs, your covenant love, your covenant commitment, your promise to be with us even to the end of the age. Lord, teach us what it means that Christ is our true food and our true drink. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing the promise of Jesus that we will be filled. Strengthen us as well, Lord, as we leave this place to be your witnesses, to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Enable us this week, even in our ordinary callings inside and outside the home, to be salt and light, testifying that our hope in life and death is found only in Jesus Christ. And may you, our great and awesome God, receive all of the glory alone. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear beloved, as we go from this place to serve our God, to proclaim that Lord's death till he comes, we do it by God's help and strength, received by faith his blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, I know this kind of topic, again, is a bit of a heady topic, a bit of a heady sermon, so we welcome any questions at this time that you might have.